we're thinking about disciple making. Uh, and the question uh, before us today is, uh, why make disciples? Perhaps the first question you'd like to know uh, is the logical question might be, what is a disciple? Before we even find out why. But uh, as we structure this series, we thought it's actually starting with this conviction of why make disciples. If we don't really, aren't compelled uh, by the motivation, the rest uh, of this series will be a waste of time. Uh, so we are going to consider today the question uh, of why make disciples and the compelling reasons uh, that we are given to make disciples. And next week we'll be looking at what a disciple is. Now, for those people who uh, like a clear command, a clear instruction uh, from the Bible, a clear uh, instruction, uh, we get one uh, as a very basic answer to the question, why make disciples? Well, because Jesus calls us to. Uh, we looked at that last week from Matthew 28, uh, the famous words of the Great Commission, Speaking to his disciples, Jesus was speaking to his disciples after uh, his resurrection and before his ascension to heaven, uh, commissioning them for the work uh, that he has set for them. Uh, we read these words last week. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the command is clear, make disciples and what does that look like? Going, baptising, teaching, all those things. And now of course in one sense uh, Jesus uh, was only literally speaking to those original uh, disciples at that point and you could argue well that doesn't actually apply to us today it was only a command for those people who were there at that time uh, yet as we looked at last week and when we consider Jesus command carefully and we unpack it we see that the original disciples well they were taught to teach others to obey everything uh, that Jesus had commanded which most likely also included the command to make more disciples and we also know that practically and historically, the original disciples uh, weren't going to be able to go to all the nations themselves, and they didn't. Uh, and so uh, as they made disciples who made disciples, as people became uh, followers of Jesus from all the nations, this great commission was fulfilled. And so we're going to keep returning uh, to this, this important set of verses uh, during this series. But uh, the first thing we just need to acknowledge up front is one of the reasons that we are keen to make disciples of Jesus is because he told us to, he told his followers to. That's a pretty good reason we could leave it there. And uh, sometimes as parents you like to say, well, I just told you so and just trust me and that's it. But uh, God goes into more detail and gives us a richer relationship than just instruction and we get a bigger picture on why we are called to make disciples. And that's where we're going to spend most of our time uh, for the rest of tonight looking at. God, in his kindness, has given us an insight into his big plan. His big plan he's had since the creation of the world. The plan that is unveiled gradually through the pages of scripture. And we're going to think uh, today, tonight I'm going to have a bit of a flyover of some of the key uh, parts of God's plan. God's very big plan is what we're singing earlier God's only plan it's a very big picture 
level we're going to be thinking about. And we're going to be looking at a number of different verses which we won't all be able to go into and dwell on for a long period of time. They're included in the new uh, Bible study booklets that some of them are available at the back. There's digital copies on our website or via the email you can pick up. So follow them up uh, afterwards uh, tonight if you'd like to go into any more detail on these things. But the purpose of tonight is to see afresh, even if it's just a glimpse, just a, just a glimpse at what God is actually doing in the world, where history is heading. And hopefully to see how the call to make disciples is not only just obvious, it's also compelling in light of seeing and understanding God's plan. Well, let's start then at the end first. Uh, many times in the scriptures, uh, particularly in the New Testament, there's a picture of the future that is painted, a description of where God is moving everything. Uh, and the book of Revelation uh, is a vision that is given to John, one of the apostles, perhaps the richest picture of the future the Bible gives and the shape of the future. It is written in apocalyptic, symbolic language, so we have to read it a little bit differently. They're not scientific, technical descriptions of everything. But the descriptions we're going to see are very important, and we're going to see what is at the centre of the future, what's it going to be like in God's future. We see there in Revelation uh, 7, uh, verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple and he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. What do you notice about that image? It's a fantastic picture, isn't it? Working backwards through that text again, it's a picture of an image of a future without suffering, without hardship, with no more hunger, thirst or sadness. You know that experience when you're hangry, when you're kind of hungry and angry at the same time? You've had that? You know that experience? Well, none of that, none of that. It's going to be a future where there'll be no more pain, no more anxiety, no more depression and dissatisfaction. It will be a future where everyone will be fulfilled and content and at peace. A future where, in the lyrics of the, the song, the great song, where fears are stilled and strivings cease. It's a future with God up close, with Jesus the Lamb as our shepherd. And notice it is God that wipes the tears from the eyes. And it's the Lamb who leads them to springs of living water. Yet while this will be the experience and the blessings that God's people will enjoy in the future, I think we can see that this is not precisely the purpose of God's plan. It's in fact a byproduct of it. It's the necessary implications 
and experience of God's plan and purpose. But what is God's plan and purpose? What is it? We see that more accurately when you look at this passage, it's God's people gathered around the throne of the Lamb, the risen Christ, giving praise and glory to God the Father and His Son. This is where everything is heading. This is where history is heading. Imagine today if you had an opportunity to get a magic notepad and pen and you had a little... You, you, could, you could start to write in a journal, sort of the opposite of a diary, kind of a reverse diary. You're kind of writing what you'd like t- tomorrow to happen and it would happen, right? And you'd what, what you'd like to ne- the next 10 years to happen and it would happen. Imagine you start writing it and then you could not just write it for yourself... You could write it for everyone around you, and you could write it for the whole world. And the whole of human history, you could just write, and it would all happen. That You're writing history. What would you write? Well, this is what God has written. Gathering around the risen Lord Jesus, people from every nation, tribe, and language, all praising God. We often talk about being on the right side of history, about certain political and social issues. Make sure you're on the right side of history on this one. Well, the claim of scriptures is if you want to be on the right side of history, it's to be gathered around Jesus giving praise to God because that is where everything is heading. And there are plenty of other passages in the New Testament uh, which describe a future like this as well. But that's the end point of God's plan, where everything's heading. He's going to draw, draw that, that pointy end. That's where it's all going. But let's take a step back and think, well, what's it going to take for God to achieve his plan? Because there is a bit of a problem. There's a rift between people and God. The rift, as you've, if you've been a Christian for a while, you'll know is this thing called sin. Sin is not just doing sinful things sin is essentially saying i don't need god well i don't need him that much i'm not particularly interested in god i can do okay without god i can define god however i want sin is pervasive and subtle and here's the diagnostic test for the pervasiveness of sin even in a a community like ours right consider the image of the future we were just talking about description there from revelation if you think about it the end goal of god's plan where everything is heading there are kind of let's break that that image down into two parts two kind of key promises and that about the future and they're they're not designed to be pulled apart they're actually they come they're held together but if you imagine you could break them into two sections there's one section where there's a promise that god's people will be fully satisfied where there won't be any suffering hunger battles anxiety worries status it'll be happiness contentment satisfaction and the other part of the promise is god's people spending eternity gathered around jesus serving and praising god two parts now if you had to get rid of one i know this is a bit of a hypothetical but which of those two are you more naturally drawn to the promise that you'll never be uh, dissatisfied again that you're going to be happy and you're going to have peace and you're never going to hunger or thirst and or the promise to be gathered around Jesus serving and praising him 
Which one of those two do you find yourself more naturally drawn to? I think if I was to walk around uh, the streets of Barara, go up to Coles and not be too weird and start talking to people and say, well, you know, if <laughs> somehow, somehow put those things out there and say, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you think is more appealing uh, to, to be fully satisfied and never, to never to be hungry again and, and, never to, and, and everything to be at peace or to serve and praise Jesus for eternity? I think most people would find, actually, I think I'll, I'll go with the... Um, I'll go with the, the promise of relief of suffering and happiness and all that kind of stuff. Because we're very good at committing to that the goal of life is the pursuit of happiness, isn't it? Rather than serving and praising God. Now, of course, it is good and right to look forward and yearn for the day when our pain and suffering is in our past. I actually think part of living in this world, part of the way that we are, wired as God's image bearers is to yearn for that to be in our past. But isn't it interesting, even when it comes to thinking about eternity, uh, what it'll be like and what we're going to be doing, we can see that subtle dynamic of the work of sin at work in our hearts and that is we can very quickly crave the perfect kingdom without the king, right? And that's the dynamic where our hearts want God's blessings, but we don't particularly want him. And sin is the lie, I think, that a life seeking to serve and praise God and not ourselves, well, that might get boring. That, that might be unfulfilling in the long run. And sin, I think, we see in the New Testament is so widespread that the des- description of the state of our world is our present darkness or this present darkness and so for God's plan to come about a key part of God's plans and purposes is a rescue mission a rescue mission put put in place through his son and Colossians chapter 1 puts it this way he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins so there's a rescue mission there salvation but it's not actually just a rescue mission uh, put in place through God's son for us it's actually a rescue mission put in place by God the father through his son for us but for his son ultimately and you might think that's not true well have a look at how Colossians 1 keeps going. You've got verse 13 and 40, which I just read, and it goes on to verse 15. Paul just keeps going. He is the inv- image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for us. Did you spot the mistake? I hope so reading along and for him he is before all things and by him all things hold together he is also the head of the body the church he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have the first place in everything for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Well, as a church, 
I think we're never going to be compelled to make disciples if we're not convinced of the reality of this deep spiritual darkness in our present world. We won't be compelled to make disciples of Jesus if we're if we can't sense and see that God's plans for this world are all centered on Jesus and on his son that without Jesus we are all in darkness. Uh, we have loved getting to know the suburb of Barara. It is a fantastic suburb to live in. Beautiful bushland, lovely people, friendly people for the most part. No, <laughs> when they're not on Facebook. Um, friendly people, lovely people, many opportunities for our children and families. It's a peaceful place with kind, gracious, kind-hearted people. Yet I suspect with all these blessings that we enjoy, we can become very quickly numb the spiritual darkness of this suburb this part of the world we can kind of create an equilibrium that makes us feel okay where we settle for maybe at best getting to church each week or as often as we can as long as we're juggling a whole bunch of other things we're happy to help out as much as we can practically and you know we can be very easily numb to the eternal future the spiritual reality of people in this world and the world around us now jesus used a word that we don't like people like me saying from up the front but jesus said it more than anyone else in the bible so i'm going to say it the word hell is a word that people would love to scratch out of the bible the Bible is very clear that very normal, everyday people, decent people, kind people we speak to every day are on their way to hell unless they repent and turn and trust in Jesus. Now, if you and I can't remember the last time you were genuinely concerned about the eternal destiny of somebody else, well, it's a likely sign that you have become numb to the reality of the present darkness of our world. Now, of course, we can, be, we can see that the world is dark in many ways. We can be exhausted in the, about the wars and we can be exhausted about a whole bunch of things about the economy. And we can feel that the world is dark. But that's not the way that the Bible talks about the darkness of the world. The Bible talks about the darkness the world is lost without God, not knowing Jesus. What would our church look like in the year ahead if we were more and more convicted of these reasons why we are called to make disciples? And what are the reasons? What have we seen today? Let's bring it back. First is the very basic one Jesus told us to make disciples of all nations. We've also seen that it's God's rescue plan. God sent his son to rescue people from the darkness of this world, to bring them into the kingdom of his son, to bring people from death to life, out of the storm, to save them from judgment, to give them hope for the future. We've also seen that the reason Jesus tells his followers to make disciples is because God's plan is that on the last day, he will have a people from every tribe, language, tongue, nation, gathered around his son, praising him and serving him forever. 
that's why we want to make more and more disciples of Jesus Christ. The big reason why we make disciples of Jesus Christ is because God's goal for the whole world and the whole of human history is to glorify his beloved son in the midst of the people he has rescued and transformed. Well, as we finish up, I wanted to uh, just read a little bit of an excerpt from a book that some of you might have heard called The Vine Project. It's an excellent book that's helped me shape and form a number of parts of this series and some fantastic insights and lessons and wisdom into what it looks like to be a disciple-making church. Uh, but they, in this, uh, there's a section of the book where they have a bit of a thought experiment uh, to, to take a hypothetical uh, example of what is going on when an unbelieving friend, a friend called Fred, let's say, we'll give the name Fred, becomes a disciple of Jesus and joins a church. They ask the question, what do you really think is going on when Fred becomes a disciple of Jesus and joins a church? According to the non-Christian world, those who are not Christian, the wider world, what is happening to Fred from their perspective is that for a range of personal and situational reasons, Fred is turning to religion and spirituality to fulfil certain needs in his life. For meaning, for belonging, for comfort, for certainty, to be the best possible version of himself. Uh, the world might see this as a positive development for Fred or, or not, but however they evaluate it, it will be in terms of uh, whether faith helps improve people's lives. Now, what's going on with Fred, according to some Christians, the writers say, is that what is going on is actually not much different from uh, the, the world's description I just gave then, with the exception that the God Fred is turning to really is there, really will help Fred improve his life. That is, the key outcome of Fred becoming a Christian is a better life for Fred, more meaningful, more upright, more loving, more rounded and spiritual, possibly even more successful in helping Fred to become the Fred that he was always meant to be. Now then, there's another group, other Christians... This focus from some Christians that I've just mentioned here of improving our lives now is a bit tawdry and unspiritual, they would say. They would say that what is really happening is God is giving Fred something much better, much more value than, valuable than any life improvement he might imagine. And that's a new personal relationship with God through Jesus a relationship that gives him salvation and peace with God now and entry into heaven when he dies. Now, that's often the point where most Christians will draw... That's, God, that's what we say is going on when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. But when we zoom out even further and look at what is happening with Fred in light of the passages we've been looking at today and other parts of the Bible, we see that what is going on is not just about Fred. In fact, it's not primarily about Fred at all. What is happening amazingly and remarkably is that God is continuing to move all of history. In this case, this little fragment of human history that is Fred towards its final goal. With the conversion of Fred, God is laying 
one more brick in an eternal spiritual temple founded on Christ and glorifying to Christ. Jesus is building his church, his congregation, his assembly, his great gathering of redeemed humanity that will one day throng around him in a new heavens and earth. And God is doing this one thread at a time. That's why we want to make more and more disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why, why, why we want to grow more and more disciples of Jesus. Well, next week, we'll look at the question that you might be now really wanting to ask. Okay, then, what is a disciple of Jesus? We're going to look at that next week. We're going to see that. Please stand up.